Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. My co-host, who is not in front of me because he's been dispatched to some kind of weird war zone, at least based on the sound quality. Ellie Mistal, you out there? I'm in my home and I'm hot as balls because to record, I have to turn off all my, I don't have air conditioning on my main floor. So to record, I have to turn off all of my fans. So not only am I using my uh, Rock Band 4 PlayStation mic to record, I'm also basically naked. Wow. So now that all of our listeners have, they, yeah, now that you're all, you're all ready with that visual. So yeah, so uh, okay, it's warm here in New York these days, but we're coping. I'm in an office that has air conditioning, so I'm coping much better and fully clothed and everything. Uh, I don't mind nudity. Fair enough. So um, that's not what's pissing me off today. Oh, oh, by all means. So I just put this article up on Above the Law. What's really bothering me today which is the use mention distinction that, at least on my Twitter feed, exclusively white intellectuals are using to justify the use of the N-word by white professionals. Uh, We put up a post about an Emory Law professor who, quote-unquote, mentioned the N-word in connection with a case in his class that allegedly uh, mentioned the N-word. Of course, the case he was talking about did not actually use the N-word, so he was... Yeah, you don't need allegedly here. This is actually established. Yeah, I'm saying he said that the case that he was ah. teaching used the N-word, which, you know, spoiler alert, it did not. So he just got a free N-word in on there. One of the higher-ups at the Human Rights uh, Watch, she resigned after using the N-word, mentioning the N-word, according to some people. And it just, it really bothers me that white people think that driving a wedge in between use and mention of the N-word makes one goddamn difference to me, right? Like, you shouldn't use the N-word. You shouldn't mention it. You shouldn't articulate it. You shouldn't moan it out in anger. Just use a different freaking word. It's not your word to use. I do not use the N-word. Joe, you can vouch for me here, I think. I don't use the N-word in public. I don't use the N-word in private. I don't use the N-word when six drinks to the wind. It's not in my lexicon. I could, all right? Right. There is a double standard in this country on this particular word, and I could use it if I wanted to, but I don't. And if I don't, and I can, you, as a white person, literally have no excuse to use it. Yeah. Or mention. Yeah, it's a, it's it's remarkably easy to uh, not utilize it. And Joe, when you do debate, for listeners who don't know, you coach debate. I do. When you are dealing with a critical race theory topic yeah. or you know, I'm sure that word comes up in some of the literature that you teach. Yeah. Do you mention the N-word to your sometimes African-American students? No. It's pretty easy not to. In fact, the way in which we keep utilizing the word N-word is actually pretty evident. It's a thing that exists right there so that you can flag the fact that it exists without saying it. But yes, no, you don't. There are, of course, difficult questions along the line of 
well, if you aren't saying it, but you're introducing evidence from somebody who did, who probably had the right to, is that you erasing their perspective, yada, yada, and arguments can be had over that. But as a general matter, no, you don't. You can just not use it. It's just safer. It's just it's just fundamentally safer to go about your life not using that word. Yeah. All right. I think that's fair. Not everybody needs to be Snoop. Okay. Like, mm-hmm. not everybody is a goddamn gangster rapper and needs to live that life. You could just live a different kind of life where that word is important. And look, I like to say that I don't use the word or say the word or mention the word because of kind of a higher intellectual purpose. There is also the fact that I'm more twofer from 30 Rock than Tracy Morgan, right? Those double Harvard degrees. Yeah. I can't pull that word off like some of my brothers. However, Again, it's not that hard for me to live my entire life without using the word, even as a black person. So if it's not hard for me, I fail to understand how a non-black person could have significant struggles with it. Yeah, I mean. Rant over. Right, yeah, it's pretty easy. And yeah, we have a really ready to exist marker to suggest to people that this thing happened without saying it, so. So with that, let's transition and let's talk about, you know, unmitigated violence. So yeah, so very fascinating way in which this kind of all came up. I was messing around on my Twitter and just, you know, seeing what what all was out there when I got a- Messing around on Twitter, not using the N-word. Also true. When I got a fascinating pitch from someone telling me that they're a lawyer who has some- uh, kind of a niche interest in MMA. And I was like, well, that's a thing that's interesting. That is a world that I would be interested to find out how one marries all of those things. So our guest today is Jason Cruz, who, well, he can tell you himself. So welcome to the show. And how do you get into all this? Hey, guys, how are you doing? Long time fan. First hmm. time, uh, First time uh, yes. on the podcast. First time <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Uh, Welcome. Yeah. yeah. So um, I am a lawyer out here in Seattle, Washington. I've been practicing for, goodness, almost coming up on 20 years, but I have my own practice. But one great thing about having my own practice is I could uh, write about my uh, differing interests. So one of the things I do is I write about combat sports. And the website I write for is called MMAPayout.com. And we focus on the business and legal aspects of mixed martial arts. And believe it or not, there are a lot of legal uh, issues in martial arts. Oh, I would imagine because it seems like it goes that next, at least some of the times I've watched it, it seems like you're crossing into a world where people are just trying to kill each other. So I would assume there's at least some serious legal discussion. That's before we even get into the business side of it. Yes, most definitely. Before we jump fully into it, can I ask as an older man, I wouldn't be that old. I don't, I don't consider myself. <laughs> I'm saying me, me, I, I am. Oh, you. I am, oh, oh. Yes. Okay. No, I, I, I am. I have got one foot in the grave. As an older man, explain to me why you chose to focus on MMA, which, as Joe points out, is kind of closer to assault, uh, <laughs> and not the sweet science. See, because I, I'm all about the old and ancient art of boxing, and MMA feels a little. Again, I'm, I'm showing my age. MMA is all just always feels like the new kind of more violent, more quick version of boxing. What are your feelings on boxing between boxing and MMA? 
Yeah, you know, you know, it's hey, it's actually it's an interesting story because, you know, I grew up sneaking out of my bedtime to watch boxing matches that my dad was watching at night. So he was a big boxing fan. So that's how I kind of got into like the combat sports kind of arena there. I, I mean, I'm still a big sports fan all around, but you know, I, I had uh, held my heart there for boxing. Just I don't know what about punching another man in the face was interesting, but it was. Yeah. Uh, and then flash forward to maybe in my uh, misspent 20s, and uh, I lived in Orange County, California. I was at a bar, and I came upon uh, Tito Ortiz Chuck Liddell fight, I believe that was. Or was it uh, Ken Shamrock? It was, anyway, two MMA fighters. And it was Orange County. It seems to be known for, uh, I don't know, something. But uh, anyway, uh -huh. they are big MMA. It's a big MMA community. And I started watching it in the mid-2000s, and I just grew up on it. And it was funny because the website I write for, they had an ad in about 2011 saying, hey, we need a writer. And lo and behold, I answered the blind ad and, and made it. And I've been a big fan ever since. That's how I kind of came to Above the Law, only... I have not been a big fan of the law ever since. <laughs> if I can divulge something to you, I remember that whole process. And I was considering throwing my hat into the ring of the, uh, what was it, the talent show yeah, or the, the, idol. the ATL Idol. ATL Idol, yes. But obviously you won, so to speak. And congratulations. It's been, it's been great. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, uh, for the... See, that's young, how old I am. I yeah. remember that. For the younger listeners, yes, Ellie got his job here through a contest. So um, someday there will be an oral history about that, I'm sure. But yeah, no, so did you ever, I'm not going to say fight MMA, but did you, any of this stuff, did you get into like martial arts, boxing, wrestling, any of the various disciplines that go into MMA? Is that part of your interest or was it just literally seeing that? You know, it's funny because it happened after I became a fan. I don't know why, but like, you know, I was really scrawny in high school and people wanted me to be on the wrestling team, but I'm, I was like, you know, that's not my thing. I don't know about doing all that. But, you know, after I became a fan in the 2000s, I became interested in it. And I, I did for a couple years, I did kickboxing and boxing, kind of working out, uh, going to an actual MMA gym. And it takes a toll on your body. So I've stopped doing that, but I still do jujitsu. So it's a good workout. And, you know, it's one of those types of sports that you have to kind of lend yourself to for a while before you can actually get adjusted to it and all the happenings behind it. It takes a toll on your body has to be one of the biggest understatements of this entire podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. It takes a toll on your body. And yeah, you do wake up with a different kind of soreness. I, I, I don't know. It's like all of your body, you, you don't realize that you had a bruise on your knee or your, you know, your shoulder, like hurt that much, that kind of stuff. So, Jason, where where is the line between the sport and, you know, criminal assault? I, I know where the line is in football. I know where the line is in boxing. I don't know where the line is in MMA. Well, I guess the, the question is, if you're into criminal assault, maybe you're doing MMA wrong. But, <laughs> but uh but yeah, it's definitely a disciplined sport. One of the things that I noticed when going to the MMA gym and training with guys that like basically kick you and hit you and it, things like that, everyone's really calm. Everyone's really, <laughs> I would say 90% of the people I've interacted with 
are very calm. They're like, hey, how's it going? You know, that kind of thing. But I mean, so I know gyms now are afraid of CT and things like that. So there's not a lot of sparring, so to speak, where you go in and you punch people really in the face. Now they do it with pads and things like that. And if you progress, you can go to sparring. Back when I did it, you could just sign a waiver and enter the gym and people see you as fresh meat. But <laughs> but to get back to my point, I would say 90% of the people after they, you know, hit you and things like that, they're like, hey, man, good job. Great job. You know, they pat you on the back, that sort of thing. And I think a little bit of that is the overarching theory that, you know, you have to have people to spar with. So you got to be nice to these people so they come back. Otherwise, you're left alone hitting a uh, bed. Don't slaughter the cow. You need that milkman. Yeah. Wow. So I find this fascinating because you've worked in big law sorts of places because some of a lot of our listeners are folks who are starting out in their career or still in law school. So the idea that somebody could kind of forge a path like you have that works for firms, then starts out on your own, does some writing on the side. That's just a fascinating path that I think a lot of folks just kind of need to know can exist for them. So I'm glad you're here to kind of tell people that, no, you can do this. I came out on the other side. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I survived. <laughs> so let's talk about MMA and the legal ramifications of it. I mean, Ellie's kind of previewed the uh, criminal assault sort of discussion, but there's a few different kind of things going on with MMA in law. Actually, several. You write about them. That's what MMA payout is for. But one thing you originally raised with me was this Conor McGregor case. Can you walk us through what's going on there? I'm sure your social feeds know that Conor McGregor is back. It's hard not to hear a TMZ video or something of Conor McGregor, but he, he's going to be Fighting in October in Las Vegas in what uh, the UFC is calling the biggest fight in history. But to take us back to the actual lawsuit that we're talking about here, in August of 2016, he was set to promote a fight against Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz, um, for those that don't know, is a fighter that just doesn't really like a lot of people. He's what you would call rough around the edges, very unrefined. And that's why people like him. That's why pe people people like him. So anyway, take the press conference was, uh, you know, a couple of days before the fight. And they were at the MGM and they were set on stage to do, you know, one of these things where media asked, you know, what's your game plan to uh, you know, defeat Connor? Well, I'm going to punch him in the face and a lot, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so Connor doesn't show up on time. They decide to go ahead with the press conference because they can't wait all day. He shows up maybe 10, 15 minutes late. Diaz, who's there with other fighters, is visibly upset that, you know, basically he thinks this is a personal diss to him. So once Connor sits down, a couple seconds later, he gets up and leaves out through basically the crowd, trying to find an exit door off of the stage. Connor doesn't like it. There's a heated exchange of words. And the next thing you know, Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz and whoever was with Nate Diaz were throwing bottles and cans, lobbing them at each other, but also in the vicinity of people, like over the media, around people, things of that nature. So, yeah, no, these dudes sound totally chill and calm. 
Yeah, I, once there's money involved, they don't need to be nice. They have somebody to spar once there's money involved, I think. That, that, that is correct. <laughs> this, is, this isn't the gym down the street. No, no. But yes, they grew in animosity. And also one of the things is you have to promote this vitriol, this hate between one another so you could buy a pay-per-view for 60 bucks. So they start throwing bottles at each other and the security kind of breaks it up. Apparently, a security guard at the MGM was struck in the shoulder, back shoulder, by one of Connor's throws. It was a can. And so he claims that due to the can, he suffered some injury. So, oh my God. Yeah, some injury. He, he suffered some injury. So, it apparently, uh, three months, three or four months after this, he sends a demand letter to Connor McGregor's representative stating that, hey, you know, I got injured when Connor threw that can at me. I have three grand in medicals, but because you made so much money, I am requesting that you give me two hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars, two twenty-five plus the three thousand, because the math. And <laughs> you do this, or I'm going to sue you. Conor McGregor, as you would one would expect, says no, go pound sand, and um, he sues Conor McGregor. Flash forward a little bit here. Basically, the case gets sent to federal court. It was filed in, in Clark County, Nevada, and moved to federal court by Connor's attorneys because of the request for the amount of money. And also, by the way, Connor is not a resident of Las Vegas, Nevada. He just fights there. He's the resident of uh, Dublin, Ireland. So plaintiff's attorneys, you know, are personal injury attorneys. And so they... Based on what I'm about to tell you, I would say their um, familiarity with the federal court system is limited. <laughs> <laughs> so they had, before they moved the case to federal court, they brought a motion to compel the deposition of Connor. They moved to obtain documents such as his 1099s, his tax forms, all of his UFC contracts, how much he made from the fight that he was promoting at the time, the tickets that were sold for the fight because they wanted, of course, being attorneys and, and discovery, they want to make sure that if a judgment is made against Connor, that he could pay. That's why they need the documents. And you can see what's going to happen here. They moved to compel those documents. But what happened in the, in the interim of, of requesting all that information is that they moved the case to federal court. Well, federal court's a little different, um, as they soon find out, because they attempt to move to compel the documents as they would in state court. And basically what happens is they submit a declaration and that was first, that was like the first thing on the page. And they submit some bland factual information about like the meet and confer. And what happened is they wanted to depose Connor in September, knowing the fact that he was going to be in Las Vegas for this fight that I said it was going to happen in October. Well, Connor's attorney say, being you know, savvy attorney saying, you know, hey, he's going to be training. So we, we can't have you depose him and take a day away from his training. He's trying to be the best fighter in the world, which is actually a quote from the, uh, the uh, motion. And another quote he said was, he's training beyond what you could possibly think of or something of that nature. It's like, well, how does he know what what we could think of, how much he's training. Anyway, the court denies the motion, both motions, motions to uh, compel a depot of Conor McGregor and the, the motion for all of those documents, citing essentially that they didn't do it right. 
They didn't right. include appoints and authorities or legal analysis. And with that, they didn't even have to look at the motion. Um, yeah, I'm sure the Ninth Circuit was ready to throw some beer cans at plaintiffs. At that point. <laughs> it, was, it was bad. It was bad. It was one of those things where, you know, um, if you mess up, you hope you don't mess up that much. But as you can imagine, Conor McGregor's attorneys had a field day in their opposition briefs. They basically called the plaintiff's attorneys first-year law students. They wow. cited a website, the self-help website for the Nevada federal court system. Stated Damn. That this what you need. I mean, it is, uh, I know, you know, you're supposed to be civil in civil litigation, but this was a lot of shade being thrown at plaintiff's attorneys for not cracking a book of the federal rules for the state of Nevada and checking it out. So maybe the shade was appropriate. And so that's where we stand. The one thing that Conor McGregor's attorneys did offer was McGregor to be deposed a week later in Dublin, Ireland, knowing that Plaintiff's attorneys aren't really going to fly yeah. to Ireland right. for this whole shenanigans. Anyway, so that's where it's ended up. I've actually tried to contact both attorneys on both sides and I haven't received a response. I know that, you know, I would assume that they would want to do something, you know, quick. The one last thing, fact discovery ends October 31st. So they, plaintiff's attorneys are really uh, up a creek. Yeah, man. Joe, have I told you my theory for fan liability? Uh, probably, but by all means, tell everyone You else. go to a sporting event, that should be a constructive waiver for the kinds of crap that ends up in the stands at that sporting event, right? You go to a baseball game, you have to assume the risk of getting hit by a baseball. You go to a NASCAR event, you have to assume the risk of getting hit by a flying tire or whatever. You go to an M&A press conference, I feel like some punches and bottle cans are like part of, should be a part of your effective waiver. I mean, okay. Yeah, <laughs> why not? I do love that you're jumping to the idea that a what's supposed to be a press conference will inevitably end in a brawl, as opposed to a baseball game where, uh, so long as the Mets aren't playing, you can assume someone's going to hit a ball. But with a press conference, theoretically, it doesn't have to end in a fight. An MMA press conference, I think, look, yeah, if you go see... Uh, Barack Obama press conference, you don't expect this to end in a fight. You go see a Conor McGregor press conference, you should assume that it's going to end with somebody throwing a beer can around you. But here's the thing, Ellie kind of points out, you should assume that these things are happening. If you were plaintiff's attorneys, don't you think you probably would have also filed suit against the MGM, the place that houses this? Yeah, the deeper pocket. And the UFC, the people who are promoting it because they didn't provide sufficient amount of security. And that's just only in my mind. More so than not having the points that are announced, that's the rookie mistake for a personal injury lawyer, not adding every single person who might have any money and liability to the case. Because Connor has no reason to really settle. He's freaking Connor McGregor. Yeah. But the MGM is going to be like, here's $5,000, go away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the insurance would kick in, right? You, yeah. you, and you get right. your insurance lawyers in there and they get coverage and it's fine. We'll just, you know, pay you off the nuisance value. Wow. And I need to go to one of these MMA press conferences. I need some I need some money. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you just recorded something that will go out to the public that says you believe that you've assumed all risk by going there. Oh, anyway. All right. I, looks like we're coming close to the uh, end of our show here. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. The website, again, is MMA Payout. So if you're a fan of MMA or just legal business analysis of sports generally, that's one to add to your list. Thanks for joining us. And uh, the next time something uh, crazy happens in MMA, we know where we're going to call. Awesome. I appreciate 
appreciate being on with both you guys, and uh, I'll keep on listening. Excellent. Thanks. And thank you, everybody else, for listening to the show today. You should subscribe. You should give it ratings, you know, stars, reviews, all that sort of thing. It helps us move up the algorithm in the different subscription services so more people listen. You should listen. You follow me on Twitter at Joseph Patrice. You can follow Ellie at Ellie, E-L-I-E. NYC. You should read Above the Law, obviously. You should listen to the rest of the Legal Talk Network podcast offerings. You should listen to The Jabot, which is another our colleague, Catherine Rubino's podcast. And uh, yeah, keep your eyes out for announcements on Above the Law that we're going to be visiting the place because you should come out and see us and we'll do a trivia like we did in a recent episode. Austin! Cool. All right. Talk to everybody later. Peace out. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.